asked me, why don't we have a toaster? I said, because we don't want to burn the church down. That's why we don't have a toaster. <laughs> we technically do, but the, and, uh, some of the kids know where it is. So, But we have people like leave their bagel in there for like too long and, you know, bad things happen. <laughs> we, we want the fire of God, but just not the fire of God through the toaster. That's not what we're looking for. Yeah, oh, we, that's right. We do have a retired fire captain here, so we, he could make sure that everything's uh, done. So, anyway, uh, Jesus tells us to make disciples, does he not? Yes. A disciple, say it with me, a disciple. Come on, you can do better than that. A disciple is a learner under discipline. The word disciple simply means disciplined learner. Someone who learns and disciplines their life to do. Jesus says, teach them to observe everything I have commanded. Say this with me. Discipleship is learning, doing, and understanding. Discipleship is as much about understanding as it is about learning specific principles. So we can learn specific principles. We can do those specific principles. But our growth and our maturity is directly related to our understanding. The Bible says get wisdom in all your ways. And everything that you do, seek wisdom. But as you're getting wisdom, also get understanding. Understanding not, you know, when we get wisdom, we hear the instruction of God, we hear the, the wisdom of God, but then we also have to understand. We understand God's nature, we understand God's heart, we understand God's purposes, we understand all of the things that relate to Him, and then we grow. We grow. Say it with me. Jesus wants me to grow. That's right. Say this with me. Jesus loves me too much to leave me the same. He will not leave you the same. He will not. If it's up to him, if you can harden your heart and keep saying no, no, no. But if you ask Jesus to work in your life, he's going to. He will not leave you the same. So we're going to do a few weeks on knowing God. We're going to talk specifically last few weeks. We've been talking about um, you know, the fall of man. We've been talking, we're talking, doing this whole series on discipleship. We're just really trying to put some deeper things into your life. And we're going to do uh, a few weeks on knowing God. So today is a summary of the Lord. So we're going to talk about God in a very broad context. And over the next few weeks, we're going to get a little bit, we're going to narrow it a little bit more. And so we're going to talk about the Lord this morning. The human approach to God is that God is abstract and transcendent. Most people view God as, well, if there is a God, he's transcendent, he's out there, and he's abstract. We don't really know. God works in mysterious ways. He's so far from us. He's up there. He's aloof. He doesn't care. All of these different things. Man has a really interesting approach to the Lord. And one of the basics are, if we even believe in God, atheism is pretty prevalent in our country. We believe in atheism because because America has become humanists. We believe in the human right to determine life, and we believe in human viewpoint, and not in submitting ourselves unto the Lord or unto a God. We believe in humanism. We're our own God. Well, where'd that come from? Hmm, I wonder. Hmm, hmm. Yes, exactly. So we manifest, literally, the fall of man through that attitude. Man's attitude toward the Lord is that when he is talked about, his attributes are always evil. It's an act of God. That hurricane's an act of God. 
God's judgment, God's this, God's that. They always look at God from a negative context. The Bible has no such viewpoint. If you understand Scripture correctly, even the Old Testament, you'll understand that the nature of God is clearly revealed. Clearly. Scripture does not teach that God cannot be known. Scripture teaches that God can be known. God, you can know His nature, you can know His personhood, you can know His ways, and you can know His heart. The question isn't whether or not you can know Him. The question is, is do you want to? That's the question. God will allow you to come as close to Him as you desire to. God determines the level of the relationship, and God determines the terms of the relationship. He lays the terms down by which He will relate to you, and so long as you will relate to Him within those terms... He will allow you to be intimate with Him. Sounds a lot like my wife. She defines the terms (laughs) by which I relate to her. (laughs) And so long as I'm relating to her within those terms, (laughs) she allows me to be intimate with her. (laughs) All the men said, Amen. Say it under your breath. I know she's sitting next to you, you know. Elbow on the side there. God can be known. God can be known because He allows Himself to be known. The only reason the Lord can be known is because He chooses to let Himself be known. If He did not want to be known, you can rest assured He would never be known. God does not have to make Himself known. It's an interesting dynamic. If you read the Scripture, you'll read certain things, and as you see this develop, the the Bible reveals itself to you when you operate into it according to the right framework. It's like a key. It's almost like a mirror. I saw this guy standing in front of a mirror and he had these mirrors and he had this kind of crazy mirror and he was doing a motion in front of the mirror and the mirror was reflecting it back to him in slow motion. You know, and what what was being seen was if you moved in perspective, the perspective of the mirror changed. Right. And so what was happening like kind of warbled or what was happening out of time was related to the perspective of the person looking at the mirror. The Bible is exactly like that. It's relative to your perspective towards it. The Bible unlocks itself to the people who understand its context and understand the right framework from which it's being spoken. One of the greatest things that you'll ever want to understand about the, God, the Bible is if you, if you approach the scripture from the goodness of God... And you understand that God is good, and everything that you're reading is in relationship that God is good, no matter what you feel is a contradiction, and you begin to reconcile everything that you read and everything that you understand as a, contra- as a contradiction into the goodness of God, you'd be amazed how Scripture opens to you. You'd be amazed. God can be known because He allows Himself to be known. God accommodates Himself to us. He becomes like us. He, comes to, he speaks to us in ways by which we can understand Him. He allows Himself to be known. Most Christians, forget the unbeliever, that's a, they're, they're, they're completely lost. I have people tell me, well, we worship the same God. I'm like, no, we don't. No, we don't. I'm a Buddhist. I worship the same God as you. I'm like, no, you don't. Unless your God looks like Jesus, we don't worship the same God. Um, you know, I'm, I'm Muslim. We worship the same God. No, we don't. Unless your God looks like Jesus, we don't worship the same God. Let's just be clear. That's, we, there's not no unity. There's one God. There's one, one rock star. His name's Jesus. His name's not Allah. Well, I'm Jewish. We worship the same God. No, we don't. Is your God Jesus? Then we don't. The Bible tells us very clearly in Romans 9 that both Jew and Gentile are both under sin. All must repent. 
There's not one way of salvation for Jewish people and one way of salvation for everybody else. It doesn't work like that. So well, salvation's of the Jews. Yes, salvation comes forth from the Jews. But it doesn't mean Jews are saved. Jews said to Jesus, we're sons of Abraham. How dare you speak this to us? He said, don't boast in sons of Abraham. I can bring sons of Abraham out of the rocks. I can raise sons of Abraham out of anywhere. You trust in your earthly lineage, which means nothing. Earthly lineage means nothing. Heavenly lineage means everything. Born of Abraham, so what? You must be born again. It's that simple. We can know God because he allows himself to be known. Very, believers know very little about the Lord. As the children of Israel do very little about the Lord. Why? Because if they love to stay at a safe distance... We love to worship to the level that so long as it doesn't cost me anything, that's where I'll stay. Israel was the same way. The Lord commanded them to draw near and most worshiped at a distance. They didn't want to get too close to the flame. Not too hot. Not too hot. Ooh, just a little warm. Ooh, that's good. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. Don't want the light to shine on them too close. Don't want any of the stains revealed. Don't want any of the cracks to show. Worship at a distance. Psalm 103, the Lord says, I made my ways known to Moses and my deeds to the, to the people of Israel. Moses knew the ways of God. He knew the face of God. He knew the heart of God. He knew the why of God. He knew everything about the nature of God. Israel only saw his hand. That's the difference. Moses knew his face. Israel knew his hand. Most Christians only know God's hand. That's all they know. They know, if they know anything about him at all, they know his deeds. Most come unto Christ and unto salvation, and there they stay for the rest of their existence, thinking that there is no more. Say this with me. Jesus saves me to call me into intimacy. That's right. The end game isn't to save you. The end game is to bring you into intimacy, and from intimacy to bring you into destiny. That's the long game. We say, well, why don't we see it? Because people, don't, people just, because it costs you something. If you think destiny is easy, you're crazy. If you think intimacy is easy, you're crazy. Anybody who's married? Any married people in the room? Let's ask a question. Let's line them up. Anybody who's been married more than five years, let's ask the question. Is intimacy easy? No. Intimacy is a lot of work. Intimacy costs you, you. Your pride must die or there is no intimacy. Your will must die or there is no intimacy. It's the same way with the Lord. People don't want intimacy because it costs them too much. We hold our lives. We preserve our lives. We protect our vulnerability. And that is the very thing God wants. He wants your vulnerability. And that is the very thing that we will guard with everything in us. And so we remain the same. Nothing changes. It's not His will that nothing changes. It's your will. Because you will not pay the price that is required for intimacy. Jesus paid it all. Yeah, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. Yeah, absolutely he paid it all. Now why don't we practice the denial of self, the taking up the burden that it is, that it is his name. His name is no burden. Take up your cross. Take up your instrument of personal death. That's what he's saying. Carry the cross that that indicates to you that you must die in order for him to live through you. There is no more you. There's no more you. You've been bought with a price. Your life is not your own. It's that simple. 
So when people come to me and they want to receive Jesus, I'm like, well, you never, I make it extremely clear. This isn't an insurance policy. I just listen to a pastor on the radio. The guy goes, you've tried many things. Some of you, you've tried everything. You've tried this. You've tried this. This was like last week. And he goes, all I'm saying is that you try Jesus. Just try Jesus. You know what I say? Good luck. Anybody tried Christianity? Christianity is impossible without the Spirit of God. You don't try it. You know, well, I tried In-N-Out Burger. I liked it. It was kind of good. You know, I'm more of a Big Mac guy myself, so I'm not eating there anymore. You know, I tried it. It didn't work out for me. So now I'm going to try Buddhism, and now I'm going to try this, and now I'm going to try that. We don't try Jesus. We surrender to him. We submit unto him. We pour our lives out unto him. He's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your life. The call and the command upon the life of the people to come to Christ is their life. He wants your life. He wants all of you. All of you for all of you. He's not worried about your brokenness. He's not worried about your dysfunctions. He's not worried about your warts. He's not worried about what you can't do. But he wants all of you. He has no confidence in you. He's not looking at you to perform something for him. He wants the security of relationship, so within the security of relationship, he can be intimate. And when the intimacy of the relationship happens, you develop. You won't develop without intimacy. It won't happen. Most Christians are stoic religious statues. We're either like completely unstructured, out to lunch, doing all kinds of crazy things that are not reflective of of the nature of God, or we're religious statues. Too afraid. Afraid. We don't want to do anything crazy. We don't want to do anything wild. We're so afraid of being Judases that we never become Peters. We never become Pauls. We never become Andrews because we're too afraid of being something, doing something stupid. We live a life of fear. Not in passion and love. In adoration and complete surrender into a relationship that will not fail. He reveals himself to those who approach him in honesty and humility. He's not out revealing himself to anybody, people. And if you know that. You must approach him with honesty and humility. That's it. You want the deeper heart of God? The deeper heart of God only comes through honesty and humility. You have to be honest. Jeremiah 29, you will call on me and you will pray to me. And I will listen to you. When you call and you pray, the Lord says, I will listen. And you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found of you. He didn't say half your heart. He didn't say if you're trying to find me. You're just kind of trying, you know, kind of interested. He doesn't reveal to the curious. He's not, in the, he's not in the business of giving revelation to those who are simply curious. He could care less, truthfully, because he wants passionate, surrendered hearts. The, the, Lord, the guys of the Lord learn strong to and fro, searching the earth for those whose what? Anybody know the verse? Hearts are fully his. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for half-hearted. He's not looking for those who don't really want him. You know? Who are looking for a better way of life. (laughs) He's looking for those who really want him. And honestly, there's no other love than yours, Lord. There's no other person than you. I want you more than I want life itself. In you I live, move, and have my being. As the deer pants for the water, I pant for you. That's what he wants. If you don't have that, you should ask him for it. Give me a love and a desire and a compassion that creates that kind of longing in me, Lord, for you. Because I want that kind of longing. He declares himself. This is the thing about the Lord. (laughs) 
Say this with me. The Bible does not explain God. The Bible declares Him. There is no explanation of God in the Bible. If you're reading the Bible because you're going to get an explanation of who God is, good luck. The Bible declares Him. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Revelation 22, one of the last verses of the Revelation. The Lord says, Lo, I am He who comes, and lo, I come quickly, and my Lord is with, is with me. No explanation. He just says, I am He who was alive and dead. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm coming back. I'm with my rewards with me. That's it. He comes in Genesis chapter 1. He said, In the beginning, God. No explanation. None whatsoever. He declares Himself. The eternal existent one. And he looks at you, drops the mic, and goes, anybody got a problem with that? Anybody got a question? He invites you into question. The idea is, the Lord says, in the beginning, God. It's the word Elohim. means supreme ruler and judge. No higher authority. That's what he's saying. In the beginning, the one who has no higher authority created the heavens and the earth. So the scripture doesn't explain God. It declares him. And the scripture will reveal him. And we can build off the revelation that other people have had of God's nature, which we'll see some of that today. But God declares himself. He doesn't, he doesn't explain himself. You go, well, I want an explanation of God. Good luck. Who are you? Man's ego. We have this massive amount of pride and ego as if we can place a demand upon him. Let me tell you this. If you're in covenant with him, you can place a demand upon him. But if you're not in covenant with him, you have no right. You have no right. Syrophoenician woman, she comes to Jesus, says, heal my daughter. Jesus goes, you don't give holiness to dogs. You don't give what is holy to dogs. What is he saying to her? The bread is for the children, that's what he said. But he looked at her and said, the implication is, I have no covenant with you. I do not owe you anything. Do you have rain? Do you have life? Do you have breath? Do you have basic provision? You should be grateful in that. That's what he's saying to her. Oh, that's not Jesus. That's just not Christmassy enough for me. That's not Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Bible, Christian. That's not fairy Jesus. But she said to him, I believe that dogs eat even from the tables of the master. And the Lord looked, and what, what was she saying? I believe you are good. I believe you are kind. I believe you are merciful. I believe you are generous. And I believe you are willing. That was what she was saying in that statement. And the Lord said, you have what you ask. She knew him. She wasn't offended. How many of you would be offended? Oh, Jesus! Jesus looks at you and tells you you're a dog. So he tells her, you're a dog. I don't have any covenant with you. You're outside of my relationship. You come to me asking me for something. He didn't commend her. He didn't give her, you know, a, a, a participation trophy. He just said, he said that very thing to her. And she said, I know I do not have a covenant relationship with you. However, I do know that you are a generous God. I do know you are a giving God. I do know you are... And she acknowledged that. How much further would he have done if she would have said, Look, I'm willing to renounce all of my paganism and come to you. I think the world would have exploded in front of her if that had been the case. But if she would have done that. He makes himself known. In the beginning, God is the word Elohim. It's plural. So, you know, say it with me. The Trinity is not something new in the New Testament. Christians didn't sit up and go, hey, let's, let's come up with this idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is from Genesis 1 all the way through. Nothing new. The word Elohim is plural. It's compound unity. It means we, us. Ehad. That's what, I'll talk about that in a minute. He's the supreme ruler and judge. He's plural. 
And the Bible reveals the plurality of God in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As the Lord begins to relate with man through the scripture, the revelation of God becomes clearer and clearer and clearer of who he is. He reveals himself through relationships. Say this with me. The Lord reveals himself through relationship. The way he does this, you can help me with this too. The way he does this is threefold. First way he reveals is through covenant. Jesus is a covenant God. He is not a contractual God. He is a covenant God. Say this. There is a difference between covenant and contract. Massive difference. Massive. Covenant is relational. Contract is legal. Although covenant is legal, the, legal, the legality of the covenant subordinates itself to the relational side of the covenant. You understand that? I don't know if you guys are understanding that. So what is a covenant? It's a sacred agreement. It's a binding of a relationship. A covenant is marriage, is a covenant. If you're a Christian, you should understand this. It's not a contract. Say, I went down to the justice of the peace and signed the contract. Well... That's not marriage in God's economy. A covenant relationship in God's economy is a bindingness. It is a sacredness and a security that is put over the relationship in order to ensure intimacy. It is a pledge and a devotion of fidelity in order to promote intimacy. That's the goal. So God makes a covenant. Say this. Covenants were bound by three things. They were bound by blood, they were bound by promise, and they were bound by possession. That is exactly what happens in a marriage ceremony. Blood, promise, possession. Where's the possession? Right here. It's the possession. I give this to you as a pledge of my fidelity. I bind my possessions to you. I give this to you as a pledge of my fidelity. I bind my possessions to you. I promise you my love. I promise you my faithfulness. I promise you my devotion. The blood is intermingled. Do I need to do an anatomy lesson here about how the blood is intermingled? (laughs) Blood is intermingled within the marriage relationship. It's a covenant. This is why, unfortunately, we see that when covenants are broken, what happens is it costs you possession. Get quiet in the room now, right? I understand. Marriages don't work out. I get it. We're broken people trying to do trying to do righteous things. Things fail. I understand that. There's no condemnation on it. But what ends up happening when that covenant is broken is the payment of the covenant is based upon the pledges of the covenant. The pledge is now required. Possessions cost. Man, people go bankrupt off of divorces. Blood. Most of the time, children are involved. Children pay a horrible price through divorce. It's getting quiet. <laughs> promise, breath, that's the promise. Some of you, when you've been through divorce, there's some divorced people in here, you feel like the very life, the very breath itself has been drained out of you because the covenant has been broken. That's why. It's not a contract. It's not a legal contract that you can just immediately dissolve. It's a covenant. And the covenant is secured in order so that within the security of the covenant, intimacy may take place. There is a bindingness within the covenant so that the intimacy, I can give myself fully to this one and this one can give themselves fully to me because we are bound within the, within the security of a covenant. This is why God makes covenants. He doesn't make covenants because he's got nothing better to do. He makes covenants because he wants the security to be in place so that the intimacy can be fully realized. While you're faithless, he's faithful. God does not break covenant. We break covenant, but he does not. 
It's covenant. It's cut by blood. Promise and possession. It's exactly the New Testament. The blood of who? Jesus. The possession is the Holy Spirit. And the, and the breath is the promises. He decrees promises over you. He decrees that he is yours by blood and you are his by blood. Blood. He gives you the Holy Spirit. Down payment of the earnest possession, the Bible says. He gives you the possession that you are sealed, that you belong not to anyone. You belong to him and him alone. And then he speaks life over you and he blesses you with promises. He binds himself by blood, promise, and possession. So that within the, within the relationship, there can be intimacy. The Lord says, now you are mine, and now I know that I can fully give yourself to me. And do you know why? This is the most amazing thing I've ever learned about the Lord. He takes you at your word. I don't think I would take you at your word. And I don't think you would take anybody else at their word. Anybody here? Huh? We have a hard time taking people at their word. But if we, we pledge fidelity to the Lord, He literally takes you at your word. And he opens himself intimately just because of the fact that you pledged fidelity to him. <laughs> I asked the Lord that one time. I asked him, I said, why do you take us at our word? You literally believe. Somebody can be chewing gum. Yeah, I give my life to Jesus. Holy Spirit, you can have me. Yeah, on my heart is yours, Lord. I give it to you. Yep, absolutely. I surrender. Yeah, uh-huh. And the Lord does something in that person's life. I've watched people give their life to Christ, and I see the change that happened in them. And then I'm like... I wasn't. I wanted to almost go. I wasn't sure I was buying into this thing when they were do, when they were doing the prayer, but the Lord takes the person at His word, and I asked the Lord, "Why do you do this?" And He said, "Love believes all things." God's love. First Corinthians thirteen said, "Love believes all things." He believes you. He not only believes you; He believes in you. Who does that? Who does that? He's not second guessing you. That's why he takes your oaths, your vows, your commitments to him very seriously. He doesn't treat it as a trifle. You treat, you treat it like a trifle. Your prayers matter to him. Your pledges matter to him. Your honor matters to him. He takes that stuff very seriously. The covenant is given so that there's security in order that there may be intimacy. That's why it's the same in marriage. We can get a clear picture of this. Through marriage, it's the same idea. God puts a covenant with us. He binds himself to us. He just does. And he expects you to do the same in return. <laughs> Your blood belongs to me. Your possession belongs to me. Your life belongs to me. <gasps> what? You mean God wants all of me? Absolutely. That's the whole nature of the covenant, Christian. Your time, your effort, your blood, your blood, your, your children... All that you are belongs to Him. Your time and your treasure and your life itself belongs to Him. You, He is to be the absolute sum total of all that is devoted. All of your devotion. Your entire life, if you really want to get clear, your entire life is to be filtered through Him. If you can't do this, then you don't understand Lordship. Christians get saved, but they don't understand Lordship. You're born again, but Jesus isn't Lord of your body. Jesus isn't Lord of your time. Jesus isn't Lord of your possessions. That's what lordship looks like. That's the part of the issue of sanctification, is we begin to reconcile all areas of our life unto Christ's lordship. Your time is not yours. Well, i got to go give Jesus some of my time and show up in church. You should go to the mirror. Then. If that's the way you think, you need to high karate yourself. It, it all belongs to him. 
All, all of it belongs to him. Well, I guess I got to give. Guess I have to. I haven't given in a while. I got 10 bucks on me. I guess I could choke that out. It all belongs to him. It's all his. You just don't know it. And if you do know it, then you're, you're either ignorant or you're arrogant. So there are those in the room that know this, and you act arrogantly against him. And then there are those in the room that don't know this, and you act ignorantly against him. Ignorance and arrogance are our problems. Ignorance, God's Bible says he overlooks ignorance, but now commands you to obey him. He commands repentance. He, he does not allow, and he's intolerant of ignorance. Acts says the times of ignorance he winked at. He overlooked it. But now he commands you to repent. This idea of repent is to reconcile all things back to him. Well, I didn't know. He doesn't, he, God does not want ignorance on his people. He, he doesn't. How many, how many parents out there want your kids to get good grades in school? Huh? My son got a, got, failed every class. Woo! My, my son's on the F honor roll. Nobody celebrates that. We don't celebrate ignorance within our children. Why would you think God's going to celebrate ignorance within his children? He doesn't celebrate that. <laughs> Come on. Covenant is a beautiful thing. If you are in covenant, you have the security of intimacy. In other words, you can give yourself to him. You, are, you can be fully secure. There's a lot of people in this world you can't trust. But I can tell you, three people you can. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that you need to withhold from them. The Bible says he already knows it. If our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart. And he already knows it and he knows all things. Well, if God really knew what was going on in my heart, he wouldn't accept me. Who told you that? The Bible says he already knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what's going on in the closet, in the back room, and on Saturday morning and, you know, Tuesday afternoon. He already knows. He knows your attitudes. He knows what you're doing and why you're doing it. Doesn't mean he approves. He accepts you. He doesn't necessarily approve of the behavior, but he still accepts you and he still loves you. And you can still be intimate with him. True. That's why grace is amazing. We don't like, humans don't give grace, man. We give law. Vengeance. <laughs> That's our way. God's gracious, man. He's kind. So he, he relates to us first and foremost through covenant. He establishes covenant in order to foster intimacy. The next way he relates to us is through honor. God reveals himself through intimacy or through, the, or through the covenant. Covenantial relationship. It begins with the relationship with Jesus. The next way the Lord... When you begin to honor God, he begins to reveal himself to you. Say this with me. Honor creates... Access. That's right. Where there is no honor, there is no access. You want, you want access? You must honor him. You must honor his heart. You must honor his ways. You must honor his words. Whatever, all that is about him. Honor. Honor him. That's how he reveals himself. The third way he reveals is through intimacy. Moses and David, even in the Old Testament, knew God like no other. God allowed them to be intimate with him simply because they wanted to. The Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. You know what that means? He was a man who pursued the heart of God. That's what it means. He wasn't a man that whose heart... David is a man whose heart was like the Lord's. No, wrong answer. David was a man. So I can tell you right now, his heart wasn't like the Lord's. But David didn't want to be a man like a man. David wanted to be like the Lord. And so he set his heart to pursue the Lord. And the Lord said, this is one who pursues my heart. David knew the Lord like nobody else. 
simply because he wanted to. And he pursued God, and he cast aside everything around him. Paul had exceeding revelation beyond any of his contemporaries. He understood God and his ways. Peter's like, this dude speaks, and I don't even know what he's talking about. That's what Peter said about Paul. Paul said, God's given me an excessive revelation. Why? Because Paul's the one who says, cast aside every weight that sets before you and run the race with endurance. He didn't, there was nothing in his life or in his way that was going to get, away, get, in the, get in the way of the intimacy that he knew he could have with the Lord, including his own dysfunction. He knew he was messed up. He knew he wasn't perfect. He knew it. He didn't allow his dysfunction to stop him in the, in the relationship with God. He knew God accepted him even in light of his own emotional, mental, stupid dysfunctions. And he had a few of them. <laughs> Paul wasn't always the most happy guy in the world. Paul, you know, bordered on rage at times, man. He was like, he seems like he comes across like really harsh. He's the same guy who's, who's, who's circumcising Christians in the book of Acts. But then as he matured, he realized circumcised circumcision means nothing. And so then you have him writing in the letters that the circumcision of the flesh means nothing. Yet in the book of Acts, when he's an early believer, he's still following a lot of legalism. But as he matured in his relationship with the Lord, he cast it aside. He said, I count all things of loss in order for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. There's nothing, that, nothing he wanted more than what God wanted for him. That's the difference. You can have it. The question is, do you want it? That's the question. Most don't. Sad. The vast, Jesus said, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when I come? Will I find anybody, not, not people believing that he's a Savior. Will I find anyone pursuing my promises? Will I find anyone pursuing? Faith is, faith is trusting in the promises of God. Will I find anyone pursuing and passionately reaching for what I said they could have? Will I find anyone passionately reaching for, to, to become the person that I said they could become? Will I find that? Most quit because it costs something. American Christianity tells you that if it's not easy and comfortable, then it's not, it's not of God. Who told you that? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says it costs you everything. <laughs> it costs you everything. I said a guy who's talking to me about wanting to be in the ministry... And then he said a bunch of stuff to me, and I looked right at him. I said, well, let me tell you, the first thing is God's going to check. I said, the first thing he's going to check is he's going to check that ego. I said, that ego that you're just expressing to me, that's the first thing God did. So you want to be in ministry? I said, I don't doubt that calling at all. I said, but the first thing God's going to, te- he's going to take out of you is, the, is, the, is your ego. He goes, yeah, he's going to separate me from my pride. I go, no, let me, be, let me be even more clear. The Lord is going to completely and totally destroy who you think you are. He will completely raise you to the foundations. He will, he, will, he, will change, he will dismantle your thinking. He will dismantle your heart. He will dismantle your attitude if you want him. Now, you can play the religious game. Lots of them do. Everybody plays a religious game, and a lot of pastors go through the motions, play through the rituals and everything. I have no such interests. I have no such interests. I'm not interested in playing through the game and going through the motions. I want to know the Lord. I want to experience him. I want to know him. I want to see with my eyes. These things with my eyes have seen, the, the, the apostle said. These things that we have handled, we have seen him. We were an eyewitness of his majesty, Peter would say. Anybody want to be an eyewitness of his majesty? Come on. It's going to cost you you. I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a what? Living sacrifice. Get on the altar. Well, it's not comfortable, Pastor. Who said sacrifice is comfortable? Who said giving up you is comfortable? Most of us, if we're honest, we don't want to be here today. It's true. 
You've got, you're looking at your watch, you're like, I got a place to go, I got somewhere else to go. You know, there's other things that got to happen. I, I get it. You make a sacrifice to be here. And you should. Do you know why? Because he's more worthy than your time than the NFL. He's more worthy than your time than your fishing boat. He's more worthy of your time than your vacuum cleaner or your laundry. He's more worthy. And you being here testifies before heaven and earth that this is where my priority lies. My priority lies and not with Maytag, not with my car. <laughs> you know how many things I can't get to? I've got tons of things in my life I can't get to. Not because I don't want to, but because my priorities in a different order. Well, you need to take care of that. Yeah, I know I've got to take care of that, but I'm, Jesus is my first. He's my all in all. He'll provide for me. He'll take care of me on the backside. I know that. I will, not, I will set nothing before him. Nothing. I refuse. I, I will set nothing before him. Not even my pride. Not only my perspectives. A lot of Christians, they have a viewpoint. And Jesus says this and you say that. This was my viewpoint. Well, you have an idol. That's not the God of the Bible. That's the God in your own image. You've created a mindset and an attitude and a, and a, a frame of Jesus or an image of Jesus that he is not. My last church didn't tell me I had to give everything. Well, your last church needs to do you a favor and teach you truth, Christian. That's, that's just really the truth. I mean, the church has to, we have, we, we, we have to become who we're supposed to be. He reveals himself to us, right? So he reveals himself through covenant. He reveals himself through honor. He reveals himself through intimacy. He wants to reveal more of himself. So he reveals himself through his name. Exodus says this, so he's personal, he reveals himself through his name. God said to Moses, I am that I am, and you shall say to the children of Israel that the I am has sent me. I am that I am. You know, so what's that mean? It's the Hebrew word, Yahweh. So the Hebrew scripture was trans- translated into Greek about 300 years before Christ. So the Hebrew, so the Bible, say this, say this with me. The Bible is written in Hebrew, Greek, and some Aramaic. Okay? And there's a little bit of another language, Babylonian in there, but that's only from Daniel. There's a little bit, but the, the primary, all of the texts were translated from Hebrew and Greek. So the sum of all the scriptures are in Hebrew and Greek. Right? And so the, in, in, the book of, in the Hebrew word, when Moses says, this is who I am, Moses, he tells God, God tells him who I am. He says, my name is Yahweh, and it means the becoming one. And when it was translated into Greek, Yahweh became Jehovah, because that's how the, the Greeks understood it. So is he Yahweh or is he Jehovah? He's both. It's just the same word, but in a different language. We have Yahweh in the Hebrew. We have Jehovah in the Greek. Jehovah's more, we're more common. We're more acclimated, particularly in the West, to Jehovah. Because, you know, most, most of Western society is built out and through Greek foundations. Our thinking, our courts, our universities. The word university is actually a Greek word. Gymnasium is a Greek word. Most of our thinking, our processes, our structures are built out of a Greek, a Greek manner. And so a lot of times, when, particularly in the West, we're real quick to adapt that word. And if we get one word for the Lord, it's the word Jehovah. And so he reveals his name and he says, I'm the becoming one. I'm what, who was, who is, and who is to come. That's what he says. He's the God of the past. He's the God of the right now. And he's the God of the future. He compounds his name. So some of you all are going to know this. And Pastor, so I'm going to say this and people are going to go, Now I already know that, Pastor. I know that God's Jehovah Nisi. He's my banner. I go, yeah? People tell me this stuff. I'm like, do you live like it? Are you living like God's your banner? 
I know, Jehovah Nisi, God is my banner. He puts his name over you. God's put his banner over you. Do you know that? When the angels look at you, they see his name over you. Some of us were afraid to even use the name of Jesus. God's not ashamed of you. Why are you ashamed of him? Well, I don't know. <laughs> he puts his banner over you. The word Jehovah Nisi means banner. God, your banner. All of heaven, when it sees you, sees his name over your life. He's Jehovah Reah. He's our shepherd. Or Jehovah Rohi is another way of interpreting that. So he's, he's the Lord, our shepherd. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. God is the one who will lead you. This is a covenant promise to us. He's Jehovah Rapha. Anybody know that one? What is it? Come on. Healer. Okay, it's okay. It's all right. You can say Jesus and that just takes care of everything. Jehovah Rapha means the Lord who heals. Okay? So Jehovah Rapha or Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. So people who think God gives, God gives sickness, does he say I'm the God, the afflictor? Does he? When he makes himself known, he's like, I am the God who afflicts you. So he says, no, I'm the Lord who heals you. So he says, Jehovah Rapha is Jehovah Shema. He's there. That means his presence is there. Jehovah Shema. I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. My spirit is with you always. Jehovah Tzidkenu. He's the God, our righteousness. You're not right before God. Jesus makes you right before God. We receive his righteousness. No person is right before God. Well, when I get before Jesus, whenever you get before God, I'm going to explain to him. I believe my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds. You're going to lose. Because your righteousness will not stand. The only righteousness that's acceptable is the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Man's righteousness will not stand. And the Lord says, I am Jehovah Desidkenu. I am your righteousness. He's Jehovah Makedash. He's the God who sanctifies. You know what sanctify means? He sets you apart. He's, his work in his life, in your life, is setting you apart. Setting you apart. Setting apart from you onto him. Apart from what you think is right to what he thinks is right. And let me explain something to you. Jesus has a much better plan for you than you do. You think you have a vision for your life. Your vision is pales in comparison to what he wants. You think you have something that you want. What God wants for you and what you were made for in him far exceeds your highest knowledge. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, has not even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. What he wants for you is way more. And not only what he wants for you is way more, you are made for what he wants for you. When you begin to realize and step into what he wants for you, your life begins to harmonize. Your being begins to harmonize. Anybody have frustration in their life right now? Right? We work jobs we don't want to do. We deal with people we don't want. Well, that's never going to change. But nonetheless, we, we're in, we're, there's, there's areas of our life that are out of harmony. Sometimes we just have to endure difficulties. But a lot of times what it, what those, those dysfunctions is because there's a lack of harmony or a lack of a, a, a alignment with the things that God has for you. That's why it's there. When you, when, God, when you begin to walk in what God wants, harmony begins to happen. Say this with me. Just look, look. I'll, tell, I'll use my own life, right? I'll be the guy on the altar. I'll crawl on the altar. I'll present myself a living sacrifice before all of you. I'll run naked because I'm going to be intimate with you because I'm secure in my salvation, all right? Look, God calls me to things. When I do this, I'm in harmony. I'm in absolute harmony. There is nothing more harmonious to me than to teach, preach the gospel, minister to people, serve God in the highest capacity that he has called me to do. However... Everybody say, however. It's not necessarily what I want. You understand that? You understand that? Some of you are looking at me like, 
How could you not want what God wants? Because you don't want what God wants. Your flesh thinks it's got a better idea. The whole idea is that you learn to crucify your flesh and become who God has called you to be. So if you think that when God puts, when, when God sends before you, or when God tells you that you're going to want that fully, you probably won't. But when you do it, you're going to feel alive. Some of you, whatever area you're in, some of you are in business and you're just like, man, I just feel alive when I do this. There's a harmony that I feel when I do this. Some of you, you serve people, you pray, whatever, whatever it is, there's a lot of areas. But when you do that, you feel harmony. But it's not what you always want to do, right? We have a prayer team sitting here, right? I can all ask you, Ruth. You, don't all, you, you feel harmony and you feel a lot when you pray, do you not? You feel like, woo! But you don't always want to pray. She's just not like, oh. We have to be honest. The things that God calls us to create harmony, but we don't always want it. And most of the time we have a better idea. So what the process is here, well, if that was what God wanted, then I would really want it. Because I really want what God wants. No, you don't. No, you don't. He's going to show you what you want and you're going to come alive. (laughs) Got some honest people here this morning. That's good. So he's going to show you what you want. You're going to come alive. He sanctifies you. His desire is to set you apart for his purposes. But you're not always going to want what he offers you. You're not. We just got to be honest about that. And, and then you begin to say, okay, this is what the Lord wants. This is what I want. Okay. Kevin's got to die and Jesus has to live. So I have to reconcile my life into the gospel. I have to rec- this is This is clearly what the Lord is telling me that he wants from me. This is what he wants. And he will begin to show you clearer and clearer and clearer. If you're obedient at all. He'll show you certain things that he wants from you. And you're going to have to reconcile your life into that or you're going nowhere. You're going nowhere. Jesus loves you. You're going to heaven. But for me, I'm, that's not, sorry, that's not good enough. I'm not, I, I want Jesus in the rotten here and now, not just in the sweet by and by. I want the power of God in the rotten here and now, not in the sweet by and by. I want to be alive. I want to experience him. I want to know him. I want to encounter him. I want to live for him. I want to watch his glory come through my life. That's what I want. And, and the question is, you've got to pay a price for that. There, there's a price to be paid. People that tell you there's no price, they're lying to you. Straight up. They're not telling you the truth. He's the God who sanctifies. He's a Jehovah Moxie. He's our hiding place. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's our provider. Here's another one. So if we believe God brings poverty, why doesn't he say, I'm the God who impoverishes you? He doesn't say that. He says, I am the God who provides for you. I'm the God who takes care of you. I'm the God who blesses you. Just the thought. Fourth, God is spiritual. I'm going to move. He calls us out of our world and into his, and he relates to us there. So the terms of the relationship with God, we're knowing about God here. This is who he is. The promises he makes. The terms of his relationships are spiritual. God is spirit. They that worship him must what? Spirit and truth. So the terms of God's relationship with us are not defined by us. And here, I'll just speak from where I come from. The church has failed drastically in this. We think that we can relate to God with intimacy merely on the Logos word. You cannot. We think that we can relate to God and have intimacy with God merely through the disciplines and the structures that we put in our lives. You cannot. You will not relate to God in the higher levels until you learn to access and minister, allow His Spirit to minister in you and through you. That's it. You say, I don't even know what that looks like. Well, then that's, that's I'm willing. That's, then that's a learning curve for you. That's okay. Most people are at that place. 
But the point being is that God defines the terms of the relationship. He defines how he reveals himself to us. We're born of spirit and water, John 3, right? Born again. Anybody know that? Born of the water and born of the spirit. To be born again, John chapter 3. We're born of the spirit, so we're born by the spirit, and we're born by water. We just did a baptism yesterday. I don't know if the guy's here. He's not here. We had a dude run off the beach, come up to me and go, Hey, man, my name's Alex. I'm from New York. I'm a Christian. I've never been baptized. He's like, can I, can I get baptized? I'm like, come on down, bro. So it was pretty cool. But the idea of, the, the idea of baptism, it means a lot of things, which I'm not going to get into all that, but, it mean, but one of the things it means is it means immersion. It's, the word baptized is baptizo. That's where we get the word baptized, Greek word, and it means to be immersed. So when we're born of the Spirit and we're born of the water, the Bible's not just indicating a physical baptism and everything that relates to that. All that's true. But it's also given us a prophetic indication that we are to be immersed in a life in the Spirit because we are born of the Spirit. Our life is to be immersed in the Spirit. What's that look like? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? So number five, he's holy. Say this with me. The word holy simply means clean. It means clean and perfect. That's what it means. God is clean and God is perfect. And you know what? You're not. We've got to be holy like Jesus is holy. Let me just address that for you. You can say it with me. There is no holiness without the Holy Spirit. If you think you can be holy without the Holy Spirit, I have two words for you. Good luck. Because you can't. You can't. That's a, that's a huge misnomer that Christians can be holy without the Holy Spirit. You cannot. That you think your behavior becomes... In the Spirit, you're holy. You're holy. He loves you. God is holy. He's clean and He's perfect, which means His motives are perfect. His motives are clean. His intention is perfect. His intentions are clean. His heart is perfect. His, intention, and, and his love is perfect. His mercy is clean and perfect. His forgiveness is clean and perfect. He's triune. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mouth, strength. Anybody know that? It's called the Shema. It means hear. Right? Hear, O Israel. They were to say that three times a day. Why were they to say this verse, not once, not twice, but three times a day? Because God is telling them, I'm a triune God. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohim is one. Is ehad, is one. I had a Jewish lady come to me one time and this years ago uh, on South Beach. We had a speaker system. And I one week went out and said, I'm going to preach the gospel. I felt like the Lord told me. I prayed. I did, always, didn't feel like I was being used in the church very much. I'm like, God, there's more in me. And the Lord's like, hey, get that sound system and go down to Miami Beach and set it up and give the gospel. I did it the whole summer. There was a whole team of guys that, that ended up coming with me. Crazy story. This was before they, they actually passed an ordinance. That we couldn't do that. That was the, like the, the memorial weekend the, or the last weekend of the summer. I think it's Labor Is that Labor Day? Labor Day was the last summer. Of the, uh, like, that was, they passed an ordinance that summer that you, we, we couldn't. But we had done it the whole summer. And I had this little Jewish lady follow me everywhere we went. So we went like three spots. And I'm just talking about Jesus and he loves you. And, you know, reconciling people into Christ. This little Jewish lady walks up to me and she goes, I find what you're saying is so compelling. And I also find you to be a really sincere person. I'm like, well, thank you. And she goes, but I'm a Jew. And Jews worship one God. And you Christians, you worship three. And I looked at her and I quoted Deuteronomy 6.4. I said, Shema Israel, Adonai Elohim Ehad. I said, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. The word Elohim is used there. 
Adonai, Lord and Benefactor, and Elohim. I said, is Elohim plural or is it singular? She went like this. Her head went back. She goes, I'm going to have to ask my rabbi. The, the, the I am at the end of the Hebrew word indicates it's a plural word. There's cherub, cherubim, single angel, multiple angel. Eloi is single God. Elohim is plural. Ehad is a compound unity. Like a wife and a husband is Ehad. That's how God sees them. He sees them as one. That you are a compound unity. Warts and all. All of your glory. We're, we're one. God is triune. This is not something old. This, this is not something new. This is something new. It's been in, around the whole time. Okay, now I'm going to close right here. So I got just these three quick points. You guys get anything out of this? Come on. Help me. Help me. Help me. All right. <laughs> You're going to know the Lord. He's omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. So here we go. Here's, here, here now I'm going to come up against some dogmas. So there's doctrine, what the Bible teaches, and there's dogmas. Omniscient means God is all-knowing. What does that mean? The Bible says he knows the end from the beginning. What the scripture is saying when God is omniscient is he knows the outcome of every choice. Just because he knows the outcome of every choice does not mean he is advocating for that choice. Do you understand that? So when God is omniscient and I'm standing at a crossroad of my life and I have five decisions that I can make, the Lord knows the outcome of every one of those decisions. I do not, but he does. And just because the Lord knows the outcome, so there's good, better, best, there's bad, worse, disaster, so he knows the outcome of all of those decisions. I don't, right? And so that, but he, he knows. So what, just because if I, choose, if I choose wrongly, and God says, well, well, it was God's will that you drive that car off the cliff. It's God's will. No, it's not. He knew the end from the beginning. Of course he did. did you, he knows the end of your choice before you choose it. His will, God, he told Israel, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. You choose. My will is that you choose life that you should live. So he knew the outcome of this choice, and he knew the outcome of this choice, and he made his choice known. He says, this is where life is, this is where death is, and this is my will. My will is that you choose life that you may live, but the choice is yours. And so God in his omniscience, this is why it's important that we have the mind of Christ. This is why it's important that we have a communal, intimate relationship with the Lord. This is why it's important that the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. Everything looks right. It looked great. But you had this strange impression in your spirit that you shouldn't do that. But you did it anyway because it just seemed right. Everybody else was doing it. You know, it was, you know, the crowd, whatever, the impulse, the, the peer pressure. And you made that decision. And that was the worst decision you ever made in your life. And if you look back on it, the Lord was telling you not to make the decision. But it looked beautiful. It looked great. But he knows the outcome of that decision. That's why intimacy, communion with the Lord, knowing his mind, knowing his heart, relating to him, will, I would say, mitigate down a lot of the bad choices we make. <laughs> if we just listen to him. Because a lot of times these choices seem really good, don't they? Can anybody, anybody made a choice that looked like, man, that is like, that's, a, that, that's Jesus right there. That choice is of God. And you make that choice, and you just wish you had never made that. And you regret it. So true. So when God is all-knowing, He knows the outcome of the decision before it's made. He's omnipresent, which means He's everywhere. It's a threefold activation. We'll talk about it when we get to the Holy Spirit. With the believer, you got something nobody else has. You have the Holy Spirit in three forms. 
Parakletos, he's with you, in you, and he's upon you. The world does not know God. God is, with, God is in the world in a parakletos form. He is with the world, in the world. With the believer, he's with you, he's in you, and he comes upon you in power. He's sovereignly omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. It's the sovereignty of God, Kevin. It's the sovereignty of God. God, in his omnipotence, in his all-powerfulness, has sovereignly decreed a large portion of his power to his sons and daughters. You are the, probably you are the most powerful human beings on the planet right now. There is no one with more spiritual power than the spirit-filled believer. No one. No one. The devil does not have more power than you. You have the power of heaven given to you. You say, why don't I see it? Because A, you don't know what you're doing. B, you're cowardly and you never try. It's either ignorance or arrogance. You're locked in doctrines and paradigms that teach you things that are not true, but you have power. You have power in prayer. You have power in intercession. You have dunamis power. You have exousia power. You have dynamic power. You have power. No one's more powerful than you. No one. The devil's a liar. We'll talk about that when we get to the Holy Spirit, hopefully. And God has chosen this. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. And because of this, you go. Christ has said, the Bible teaches that we are in Jesus. And Jesus says, you are in me. And I have all power. So now you that are in me want you to take this power. And I want you to go. All, how, much, how much power is all power? How much authority is all, all authority? It's everything. It's all of it. We don't know what we're doing. We don't. But if we will practice, we'll learn. Lastly, God is love. You're going to like this one. <laughs> Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. Anyone who loves God and knows God, he who does not, know, he who does not, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Ooh, love. Love. We all love love, don't we? Right? My little pony and rainbows, that's kind of like how we think of love. The Bible, so it's important that we understand the context of love. God's love is feeling, is emotion, but it's not predicated upon feeling and emotion. God's love for you is based upon... Anybody know? You've been, anybody, any, seek the highest good. I knew there was somebody in here that wouldn't be a new crowd. <laughs> God's love for you is to seek your highest good. So everything... When God is loving you, He is working towards your good. To the person who doesn't know Jesus, God is calling that person unto Christ, unto salvation, because the Lord is working to their highest good. Their highest good, a non-believer's highest good at the moment of their life, at the stage that they're at, is to come to Christ. That is the highest good. To the Christian, God is working this way. He's, this, is, this is the process that he's working on. Somewhere along the line, Christian, if there's no movement in your life, you are stuck at one of these levels. Rest assured. God has not stopped working. You've stopped moving. You've stopped growing. You've stopped yielding. That's never the Lord's fault. The problem's always on your side. God moves you from repentance to salvation, from lordship. Then what he's doing is he's calling you to, into sonship and daughtership. He's teaching you who you are. He's teaching you who he is to you and who you are to him. And most Christians don't get that. The vast majority of the church is born again and saved but goes no further. Goes no further. Sunday going to meeting. Come to church on Sunday, get tickled, get a pinwheel, look at the fish tank, vibrating chairs downstairs, complain about the air conditioning and the length of the sermon, and then go home. That's most believers. And you think that's God's best? You think what Jesus bought, bought, died and paid his blood for that? That's not what he did. He's called you to sonship and daughtership. We're to move past that. The cross is the beginning point. 
We move into relationship with Him. I learn what it means to be a son of my Father. You learn what it means to be a daughter of your Father. And from that, you have intimacy. I'm a son of the highest. My Father loves me. I follow my Father's ways because it's what He wants. I'm about my Father's business. Everything is for Him. And I begin to relate to Him on that basis. And then I relate to Him not only on the basis of sonship and fathership, but then He relates to me in intimacy. And the Lord begins to tell me the heart. And He shows me the heart that, that the Father has. I begin to learn the depth of the Father's heart. The secret places of His heart. Because now the Lord can trust me because I understand who I am. And I'm obedient to Him as a son. Sonship and daughtership is paramount. Absolutely paramount. Jesus said this. There was a son who said, you guys hear me tell this story? Two sons. One son said, Dad, I'm going to do what, what I told I'm going to go do that for you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to do it. The other son said, there's no way, Dad, that I'm going to do that. And Jesus said one of them was, a, and the one that said he was going to didn't do it. And the one that said he wouldn't do it ended up doing it. And Jesus asked the question, which one was the son? The one that did it. The one that said, I won't, but I do. And so you see the predication of what a son or a daughter looks like is the one who does what their father asks. He defines for us what sonship and daughtership really is. We do what he asks us to do. And then he calls us into inheritance. And he calls us into intimacy. And he calls us into access. This is really where it goes. Romans 8 and Romans 41 says the Lord God, or Romans 8 and Isaiah 41 says God is for you. He's not against you. If you think God's against you, who told you that? Who told you that? He loves you. He loves you. So I'm going to close right here. I'm going to pray. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, allow me the honor of inviting you to know him. Say, I don't know what I'm doing. That's okay. He knows what he's doing. The Bible says this. If you believe in your, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he's risen from the dead, you'll be saved. The heart... Faith is made, the mouth, the confession is made. It's the, it's, it's the commitment. It's the possession of the heart and the promise of your mouth. It's that covenantial agreement that we were talking about. So we're going to pray a prayer together. If you've never given your life to Jesus, come on. Let's go. My question is, what are you waiting for? There's no better opportunity. And so we're going to pray together. Elevate, just pray with me. And if you're here this morning and you've never given your heart to Christ... Or you want to make sure, pray with us too. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's it? No, that's the start of it. So if you're here and you need prayer for anything, we're going to have a prayer, a prayer team available for you um, over here. So uh, they are here to pray for you. Please take advantage of that. And I want you also to know that, say it with me, God loves me. Elevate loves me. And have a great week. All right.